Hello and welcome once again to my podcast on global health, development and anything else that takes our fancy. Um, I'm going to start with a, three things that have caught my eye in the past week. One was a report from the New York Times about the astonishingly high administrative costs of US healthcare. Now, we've known for about 20 years that getting on for a third of American healthcare expenditures are the result of administration. And that is double what it is in Canada, for example. So if uh, US workers or employers pay, let's say, $19,000 a year for healthcare, that means almost 6000 goes in administrative costs. Now, not all of this is bad, uh, but compared to other countries, I mean, the Netherlands is the next one, but they're much, much lower, only about 20% of hospital spending. And Canada and Scotland, which only spend 12%, um, uh, are, are being much more efficient than the United States of America. So one explanation is that this is due to the many different payers that's within the system. But again, uh, a recent JAMA study by Barrett Richmond says, well, look, Switzerland and Germany have lower admin costs than the US, and they have a very robust choice of health insurers. Uh, part of the problem, of course, is chasing patients for their portion of bills, the part which is not covered uh, by insurance. Uh, but probably the main problem is that insurers and public programs in the United States have not coordinated a set of standards for pricing, billing, and collection. And that's why American health care prices are so high. So I think that's something that could be fixed by uh, better administration and management. Second thing I picked up on Vox was uh, an article about breastfeeding and the potential impact on breastfeeding in the United States from uh, cutting back on the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare. When this went into operation uh, seven or eight years ago, the rate of women who were breastfeeding for 12 months after giving birth rose from 27% to 34%, which according to CDC was the largest increase in any recent three-year period. Um, but given the proposed changes in Obamacare, given the US support um for the formula industry uh, against a WHO uh, resolution recently at the World Health Assembly, and given that the US still is alone amongst wealthy countries in having no statutory maternity leave, and that poor women in the United States have 20% lower uh, breastfeeding rates, this is a, a big concern. And I think a lot of people who are campaigning for better breastfeeding and breastfeeding support are worried that uh, removing the kind of support that they were provided under Obamacare, access to lactation consultants, breast pumps, time and space at work to pump their milk as late as a year after birth, these these kind of concessions would go. Right. Uh, Now, a a third thing that caught my eye and has led to a bit of a Twitter storm uh, was a New York Times report that a mass radio campaign quote, saves thousands of children's lives in Africa. This is uh, a fascinating and a very commendable trial conducted by uh, two friends of mine, Roy Head and Simon Cousins and, and others. And the, the trial actually showed no statistical impact on mortality rates of children, but they've republished the data by looking at the behaviour changes they observed and using the Live Save tool, have published in BMJ Global Health some calculations about effects on mortality that they might have had. Now, Simon, being a careful statistician, said, this research provides evidence that mass media has an important role to play in persuading parents to seek life-saving treatment for children, which I think is a fair enough conclusion. But Roy was quoted as saying in the New York Times that uh, using mass media to drive people to health centres is more cost-effective than almost anything on earth in terms of saving children's lives. Now, 
that leads to the question, what do you believe? Do you believe your trial or do you believe modelling that you do after the trial is over? Uh, and um, so I think this is an issue uh, which has excited a lot of epidemiologists on Twitter. And I do think that trials should take precedence over modelling. And there is a danger in presenting data to journalists who then turn it into a uh, a headline which is uh, disingenuous, one might say. Right, now, today, uh, we have a fascinating interview with uh, Professor David Sanders. Now, I've known David for 30 years. David's now, believe it or not, in his early 70s. He's spent 50 years involved in struggles for health, whether it's in the UK, in Zimbabwe, his home country, uh, well, Rhodesia, when he was growing up, and in South Africa, where he's lived uh, for the past um, 25 years. And he's always been passionate about participatory socialist democracy. This is a one hour interview because I think it's been so fascinating when I was in South Africa uh, 10 days ago. And uh, he offers guidance to young social medical health activists really about how to tackle the challenges that we face for health, environment, gender, inequality uh, in the 21st century. And uh, he's always been passionate about participatory, social or even socialist democracy. So I hope you enjoy the interview and uh, you can always uh, stop and start it as you go. So, David, um I want to talk about the politics of child health and a bit about the people's health movement. But I like the listeners to know a little bit more about you. And you trained as a medical student in what was then Rhodesia in the 19, late 1960s. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. Who were your, what were your influences at that time that have made you the person you are in your career? Well, I was brought up in um, in white Rhodesia, so I went to a school that was only white kids, boys and girls, and then a secondary school that was white boys only, very much modelled on a British public school where rugby was um, king, and of course, uh, given my build, uh, you know, the I only succeeded in being third reserve orange cutter for the under-13C rugby team. <laughs> so I was quite oppressed at school because I was pretty weedy. So that was the beginning of my radicalization. <laughs> well, actually, when did you become aware of the resistance movement? And, I mean, later you joined ZANU-PF as part of the... Well, I actually joined ZAPU, but... Is that the Joshua and Coma? Yes. Oh, I see. Uh, okay, so I suppose my sense of personal oppression was because I was no good at rugby. Right. And also I was Jewish. So, right. So, you know, Rhodesia, it wasn't just, of course, it was mainly blacks that were oppressed. But anyone who wasn't kind of white Anglo yeah. was also. So kids who had Portuguese or Greek or, um, like me, Jewish ancestry were also kind of bullied. So um, I first became really aware of, um, of racial oppression. Well, I suppose when I was in sixth form, when we went, I was part of the debating society and we went to a, an Indians-only school where we had a debate and it struck me how clever these uh, guys, it was a boys' school, were. And um, actually later a couple of them became con con contemporaries of mine at medical school. But when I went to university, it was really where my um, consciousness was um, increased because the university... Uh, then called University College of Rhodesia and Nyasaland, because in the days of the Central African Federation. So Nyasaland was what's now Malawi. 
and uh, northern Rhodesia is what's now Zambia. Southern Rhodesia became Zimbabwe much later. So when I went to university, the university was um, established under a royal decree, a royal charter, British royal. And so uh, it was necessarily multiracial. So it was the first time I was in close collegial uh, contact with black Africans and Indians and so-called colored people. And actually the residence that I lived in was uh, multiracial. So my corridor in residence had whites and blacks and coloreds and so on. And there's quite a lot of racial conflict, particularly in the bathrooms. Not involving me, but involving some of the white and black guys. Really? Yeah, and it so happened that in my corridor, the first issue of ZANU News was cyclo-styled. You know, in those days we used to reproduce um, prints by cyclo-styling. Right, right, right. I remember, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So uh, the campus... And I was there, you know, I was a medical student from 64 to 69. The campus was very radical, black nationalism. ZANU was sort of born on our campus because ZANU was a split off from ZAPU. So um, during the mid-60s, the university was in upheaval. Mm. And in fact, in 66, had to close for several months because of... Um, riots on the campus by black students. And when it closed, a number of my classmates, together with many other blacks, had to flee the country. And some were picked up, arrested, and put in detention. Right. And so... Um, so were Joshua and Como and uh, Robert Mugabe in prison at this yes. time? Yes. So they were imprisoned uh, around that, that period. Mm. Um, as were other nationalist leaders, such as uh, someone who was later um, who, who, who was later discredited, called Ndabaningi Sitole, who's actually who actually set up Zanu. Right. He 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 was right. he was the former so, Gabi. So you were radicalized at medical school. You then trained in pediatrics in Zimbabwe. No. Uh-huh. So I qualified, I did my um, in my house jobs in Harare, what's now called Harare, then Salisbury, and, um, and I was arrested a couple of times in my senior student years during my housemanship year for, well, basically for activism. I, I was only imprisoned, like, briefly, you know, and I... And I, um, I, I was charged and convicted of a, a kind of a, a sort of a minor offence on leading a student demonstration. But I, I, you know, I had become radicalised, and then I got called up at the end of my housemanship year for the Rhodesian Army. Right, and the Rhodesian Army was already. Um, in conflict with the, at that time, nascent liberation movement. Well, the liberation movement existed, but its military operations were fairly embryonic at the time, sort of starting from the late 60s. So I skipped the country. And then because of activities in UK, where I went to, my political activities, I couldn't return... um, well, I could return, but I would have been very likely arrested. So then I was in the UK in, could call it self-imposed exile, from 1971 mm. until early 1980. And I returned to Zimbabwe actually on the eve of Zimbabwean independence, literally. Right. Uh, so you did your training in medicine and in public health and a stint at the London School of Hygiene, I think. Yes. During that time. Well, yes. So I was already a graduate, and then I worked in pediatrics and adult medicine. Back in those days, you could only do your MRCP in adult medicine, 
which I did, mm. and the DCH. And after working in the NHS for about four and a half years, um, I was already politically involved in British stuff. Mm. I was one of the founders of something called the Medical Committee Against Private Practice. Right. Uh, and very active during that time. And I was further radicalized, but now in class politics, by my one year's um, registrarship at St. Thomas's Hospital, where I had deep insight into the British ruling class <laughs> <laughs> and uh, came into conflict several times with people there. Like, I refused to see private patients in the private wing, mm. uh, and so some of the consultants didn't like me. And I also conflicted with, well, obviously some of the, the students and the staff there. So at the end of that, having become a registrar in pediatrics, uh, I jumped off the ladder, essentially. And I decided to do um, a postgraduate uh, study in tropical, as it was then called, tropical public health at the London School. And at the London School, um, I became acquainted with, as I mentioned the other day, the writings of Vicente Navarro, who was one of the few Marxist writers in health uh, at that time. Right. And um, I, yeah, my eyes were really opened there. Okay, so uh, you went back to Zimbabwe full of optimism and hope, but you left Zimbabwe a few years later to come to South Africa. When was that and why did you leave? Yeah, well, a few years later. I mean, um, you know, in my latter years in the UK, after studying in public health, I really spent the next four or five years doing mainly political work, um, only doing locums occasionally to earn money, and I wrote my first book, The Struggle for Health, during that period, although it was only published in the 80s, and got very involved in the Zimbabwe Solidarity Movement. And also I was one of the founders of something which still exists called the Politics of Health Group in, in England with people like Leslie Doyle, who was very famous for her book the first book on the political economy of health. So we formed the Politics for Health Group. So I was very involved in political activity. I went back to Zimbabwe, and I went back with Oxfam as health advisor to Oxfam. And Oxfam established for the first time a health program in, in Zimbabwe. They hadn't done health programs before. And so I developed, um, yeah, in consultation with the very new government, a rural health program. And when I started it, the doctors that I brought in, people who might interviewed in the UK, who were interested in working abroad, we added um, to, I think there were then two or three doctors still left in the rural areas because of the liberation war, and I brought in seven. So we kind of had the biggest show in town, as right. it were, in rural health. So I I didn't stay in Zimbabwe for a short period. I stayed there between 1980 and 1992. Right. So I was in Zimbabwe for 12 years. I worked for Oxfam in the first several years and joined the medical school. So I was first a lecturer in the Department of Pediatrics. Yeah. And when it became untenable for me because I, I refused, I had to do it, but after a while it became ridiculous to me, um, to parade around the wards of the central hospital with a retinue of junior staff every single day, seeing children who were very sick, but not seeing children who were equally sick in many district hospitals around the country. So I then defected to the Department of Community Medicine because I had a qualification in public health. So I was always and have always been at the interface 
of um, I suppose child health and public health. You know, ever since that time, it's always been a tension. So, you, me. when you left Zimbabwe in '92 to come to South Africa, mm. why was that? Okay, so um, I won't go into the detail, but when I was politically active in the UK uh, and involved in solidarity work, it became clear that although of course, we supported strongly both wings of the liberation movement, Sana and Zapu. There was tremendous repression inside those movements. Uh, you know, people were killed and tortured, especially people of the left who posed a threat to, to the leadership. So I wasn't under very many illusions about the Zimbabwean regime. Notwithstanding its Marxist rhetoric, mm. I was skeptical, but I certainly put my shoulder to the wheel. And in the first several years, we managed to to do a great deal in Zimbabwe in, in terms of implementing primary health care. Because, you know, Zimbabwe became independent two years after Alma-Ata. Right. And so Zimbabwe embraced Alma-Ata and ran with it. And the government in the in the first few years uh, actually invested a lot in the social sectors. Yeah, so unlike we, South Africa, by the way. Right, exactly. So, um, and so, of course, the Zimbabwe figures show that in the first ten years of independence, mortality rates halved, literacy rates doubled, and generally speaking, they achieved many of the goals that were set, if you like, Absolutely. and the comprehensive primary health care yeah. of um, Alma-Ata, which is uh, celebrating its 40th anniversary this year, probably the most important health declaration of all time, one could argue. Yes, and I think that, you know, Alma-Ata and the PHC declaration, despite the fact that people like Ken Newell, who was one of the architects, felt that um, it had been watered down seriously at the Alma-Ata conference. Nonetheless, Alma-Ata was a product of its time, you know, when we were talking, I wasn't, but, you know, the Brandt Commission, the, the, the North-South Commission was talking about a new international economic order by which they meant social democracy everywhere. Mm. And so the Alma-Ata document was, in a way, a reflection of that time. So, of course, it has fitted more and more uneasily into contemporary political economy. Okay, so, so Alma-Ata was 78. Zimbabwe independence was 1980. Uh, you went back with great optimism. By the late 80s, when we first met, and the early 90s, uh, the whole thing had changed because since 79, you'd had the Thatcher-Reagan era come in where neoliberal principles of economics became dominant. You had a massive debt crisis in developing countries. Mm. And as a response to that, the World Bank and IMF especially promoted uh, a, a thing called structural adjustment, which was to get the market and the prices right in everything and a free market approach. And many people were saying, you loudly, that this was having a devastating effect on the poor. And I remember a conversation we had uh, where you said to me, everyone's talking about HIV in Africa correctly, but nobody was talking about the health impacts of structural adjustment. And that actually inspired me greatly because I thought, wow, what should we do about this? You were the one person I felt was talking about the causes of the causes of child ill health. And I went off and teamed up with David Woodward, a, a health, a, well, an economist. And we wrote that thing, um, Human Face or Human Facade, which was a kind of response to what UNICEF did, which was adjustment with a human face. So you were very influential on me. But I want to come on to that because we now had, since that time, another 20 or 30 years of continuing, if you like, free market, neoliberal economics, a massive financial crisis. 
So where do you see, in terms of the causes of the causes, the politics of child health right now? Because there are people that would say, let me take an opposing view, I think, to you, the the kind of uh, Bill Gates, Hans Rosling, the, you know, Bill put a, a Time magazine together in January this year, and he said everything's getting better. I mean, mortality rates are falling. Um, actually, within some countries, stunting rates, you were giving me the data this morning from Brazil. Uh, the gap between rich and poor for many countries has narrowed, whereas in others, it's got much wider. Where do you see the, where are you now politically? And, and do you have an optimistic view or a pessimistic view? Okay, just before I answer that, you asked me earlier, why did I leave Zimbabwe and come to South Africa? Yeah. So I did work in Zimbabwe for 12 years, but really after the incursion into Matabililand and the slaughter of at least 20,000 um, Zimbabweans by ZANU-PF, you know, it had this North Korean trained unit. And um, I, I was pretty involved with Oxfam. We, you know, we developed a dossier on this. We we gave it to Oxfam, say, um, War on Want, Catholic, Catholic Institute of International Relations, and others gave it to our principals in the UK, saying, look what's going on in Zimbabwe. And they slapped us on the wrists and told us to keep quiet. So the British, including the NGOs, colluded in... Um, covering up this uh, massacre, this human rights violation, which, of course, has recently been written about by researchers in the UK when they had access after 30 years to, to foreign office documents. Right. Anyway, I won't, won't go there. Yeah. But, that, but that made, for me, that kind of confirmed my um, deep concerns about the real nature of um, or an aspect of the national liberation movement, which, notwithstanding what they have had done in um, improving social services and so on in Zimbabwe, nonetheless reflected a uh, a kind of a political um, complexion that actually one sees in a number of countries which have also done very well in health. I mean, Rwanda springs to mind, and we can talk about that later. So um, in as the 80s unfolded, and by the late 80s, people like me who are very critical of what was going on, including um, later the imposition of structural adjustment, I found Zimbabwe to be untenable for me because um, there was just no room to influence political thought. And the uh, South African struggle, of course, was coming to, um, to a head in the sense that there were lots of moves towards democracy in South Africa, and many of my friends were South Africans in exile. So when Mandela got released in the early 90s, in 1990, in fact, most of my friends left Zimbabwe and came back to South Africa. Yeah. And then I followed a few years later when I got offered a job here because I'd already had experience of um, this window of opportunity which exists in the immediate aftermath yeah. of a mass mobilization which had happened in Zimbabwe. Yeah. And actually, that was the reason for yeah. the huge progress in health. I mean, the government helped, but the, the kind of mass mobilization at community level was the real reason. Mm -hmm. And in South Africa, there was a similar sort of a situation. And I did come to South Africa, very involved in policy work with the ANC at the time. And, of course, many of those policies just remain on paper. So, Actually, just on that point, I mean, we talked the other day because I'm familiar with the, the struggle in, in Nepal, which went through, uh, well, 15 years of turmoil or more. And uh, 
with leftist struggles and reaction and brutality on both sides and the rest. In fact, Nepal, despite that war, has seen its development indicators improve a lot. And we wonder to what extent you can ascribe less all the technologies or even the high-level political decisions, but the role of community mobilisation uh, in political struggles and how that actually has benefits for health. Yeah, well, you know, I firmly believe in it in both, well, in my book, The Struggle for Health and also Questioning Solution, we have some case studies of um, how contextual factors, to put it sort of in bland terms, but essentially how political and social mobilization has underpinned many health advances. So even the British NHS is an example of that. And, and of course, um, Zimbabwe is an example of that. Nicaragua was an example of that. And China. And China, of course. So Nicaragua, as you probably know, in 1979, yeah, um, when that country was liberated from Samosa, they've got 100% vaccination coverage literally in a couple of months. Yeah. And this is because of the, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. the organization on the ground. Of course, many things of, like yeah. in Zimbabwe have um, regressed. Yeah. So, yes, and China, of course, was hugely inspirational to me because, you know, the history of China in you know, in the period of Mao's um, rule has, um, I mean, there are many negative aspects, but the positive aspects have kind of been lost to history. Mm. You know, these are very important lessons in public health, how China managed to advance as it did. So fast forward to um, the question you asked about, so we are now in a period basically since Thatcher and Reagan, and I suppose it took a little while for those, for that kind of ideology to become all-powerful. But really since the late 1980s, for 30 years, basically, um, we've been in a... uh, We've been in a global economic system uh, whose basic um, ideology and justification is what we call neoliberalism. You know, let the market rule. Don't constrain the market. Don't regulate the market. Mm. Of course, in the 70s, there were contending ideologies. You know, there was capitalism and there was socialism and somewhere in the middle there was social democracy, which actually was being practiced in a large number of countries, not just the Scandinavian countries, even in the UK at that time. So now there is just one ideology, uh, you know, and unfortunately in public health and in child health, this ideological um, approach actually totally dominates our work. And I can give examples of that. You know, there is very little work apart from some that you have done, which is the reason I invited you here. There's very little work done on what we uh, believe in people's health movement and indeed in you know scholarly writing are the fundamental uh, pillars of primary health care. So what are they? Well, some of the fundamental pillars are community participation, intersectoral action, mm. uh, appropriate technology, equity, mm. and comprehensiveness. These were the five principles. So comprehensiveness means, in my understanding, promotive, preventive, curative, and rehabilitative work. We've added palliative in in the more recent times. 
But, you know, the promotive and preventive, especially the promoter, which was to address the social determinants, the causes of the causes, has basically fallen off the agenda. I mean, in health practice, in child health, well, these aspects are, are neglected. I mean, the first manifestation of that was in what we call selective primary health care, hmm. the child survival revolution of the 1980s, which was, whose acronym was GOBFFF. So, you know, we selected certain technologies, like O for oral rehydration, but we did nothing about sanitation and water supply for mm. diarrhea. So it was selective in the sense that it selected certain technologies mm. for child survival, but neglected others, and neglected especially what we call the promotive or those that address the... Uh, underlying causes through intersectoral action. And we have had bigger packages mm. of health care for children, and yet still they neglect the social determinants because as you yourself have said, sanitation is a global disaster. Mm. It is. Mm. And so is water supply. Mm. And so is food security. Mm. And if we don't deal with those things, yeah. I'm afraid we will not achieve the outcomes which are perfectly possible. Let's play, let me play devil's advocate and say to you, um, this is fine, but is there a middle way? I mean, there, there was, you talked about social democracy, which often practiced Keynesian-style economics, that when there was a, a big slump like we have with the financial crisis and private demand collapses, that the government steps in. And even if that means running up debt, mm -hmm. you invest in the economy, you get it back into shape. And that when you do that, then you use taxation and other instruments to regain and, and get back into balance. Um, that hasn't happened. We've had austerity economics, which is kind of another name for structural adjustment. Mm -hmm. And I think we would agree that's led to a lot of problems. Yeah, I but, mean... But, but just on the, the issue of many... Um, socialist revolutions, communist revolutions, has ended up in dictatorship and centralised economic planning like, say, North Korea um, and many of the East European states. And they've ended up in, you know, economic decay and actually a lot of unhappiness and repression. So, I mean, do you accept that a middle way of social democracy is possible, which harnesses the creative aspects of capitalism, but provides the regulation on financial globalization, trade rules that would enable equity to be, to be practiced as it was to a much greater extent in the 60s and 70s. Do you see that as an option? I do. Um, you know, I would struggle uh, and do for reforms. And for me, social democracy is basically about reforming capitalism right. because you know a capitalist economy still predominates so i believe in reforms but i'm not a reformist so i don't believe that social democracy can be maintained when capitalism as it always does which marx wrote about inevitably has crises of overproduction when the rate of profit falls. Yeah. And then there's a capitalist crisis, which is what we had not so long ago. Mm. And these are recurring phenomena. And usually they are um, solved, in inverted commas, mm. by an attack on the working class, which manifests as the First World War, the Second World War. And now what we see Austerity. Yeah. And austerity is, in fact, an attack on the working class. Because, as we know, the ruling classes are not suffering. You know, we know what's happening with the concentration of wealth. Eight billionaires, eight billionaire men, have the same income as 50% of the world's population. You know, the Oxfam publication right, right. on this recently. So... 
capitalism, unfortunately, has certain natural laws. And these natural laws are capitalism will always overproduce because technology constantly advances and competition of one big firm against another means there's competition to produce. So then you get too many goods, profit falls, and many small companies go to the wall. And then the big fish eat the small fish, so you end up with huge monopolies, which we now call transnational corporations. And And tax evasion. Yes, and tax evasion, and transfer pricing, and... um, And And yet the reaction seems to be uh, populism and oligarchs. Yes, because... Uh, I mean, it's very complicated, and I don't pretend to be a political scientist. But this kind of polarization of societies, which we are seeing in the US, several Northern European countries, in the Philippines, and so on, this is fundamentally because of economic crisis. So, who do you blame? I believe you should blame the system and try and change the system. But actually, populist politicians have forever, Hitler being an example, blamed the other. You know, it's the immigrants or it's the blacks or it's the Jews or it's, you know, or it's the Clintons and what they stood for, according to Trump or Obama. Um, And so uh, this appeals, of course, to people who are marginalized by the system, an ever-increasing group of people, actually, if we look at global data, um, and people are scared, and so people will go along with the nationalist rhetoric which is, you know, blaming others. Like- so, but would the, assuming democracy is preserved, and of course that's not always the case, uh, and one has to admit that Hitler was actually elected, um, but having said that, is there an electoral cycle that you think can solve this in the sense that if things are steadily getting worse for median income, as they have in many parts of Europe, high unemployment rates with the um, policies of the Central European Bank, or in America, with the massive inequalities and rising inequalities, will the electoral cycle mean that gradually the uh, centre-left forces of Democrats or others, Bernie Sanders, Jeremy Corbyn, or rising social democratic movements, would that restore the balance that we go through longer cycles of, if you like, neoliberalism and the like, or do you see a more gloomy future? And particularly bearing in mind the environmental crisis that we now have. Yeah, look, I, I, I think that, um, I think we're staring down at a disaster. I mean, um, you know, the so-called solutions offered by, Trump, or even offered by, you know, um, new, essentially neoliberals like Macron or Trudeau, aren't solutions at all. We know that. We've been through it before. It does not confront the power that is wielded increasingly by fewer and fewer um Large corporations, I think you know that of the well, the latest figures I have is probably worst, of the 100 economies in the world, 63 are transnational corporations, the 100 largest, yeah, yeah, yeah. 63 are yeah. transnational corporations. So how can, you know, small capitalists mm. actually develop when they are competing against such... monstrous um, economic, um, you know, economic rivals. So to get back to the question, 
do I think that things are all bad, that we've made no progress, and is there not a middle road? So it's pretty clear if you look at aggregate data, there has been improvement. We can't deny that. Um, although there are now data, as you know, coming out from the US showing reversals. Even in the US, reversals in maternal mortality and so on. And uh, certainly in Zimbabwe, there have been reversals and several other countries. But on average, things are improving. <coughs> but, and I think we don't agree on this, I know of very few countries where inequality has been reduced. And inequality between North and South has also not been reduced. So, um, I have a slide. No, no, I think we do agree. I think the figures show between countries overall, there's been a slight reduction, you know, with the growth of China and Brazil and, and ah. etc. But within countries, there's been yes. a massive swing but, everywhere. But even quality. between North and South, I, I have some data on a slide here, but essentially the, um, the ratio of under five mortality between the global north and the global south hmm. has worsened for the global south oh, over the last few decades. Hmm. It's 11 times, right. uh, well, for sub-Saharan Africa, it's 11 times as high, under five mortality, as in the, the global north, which is a worse ratio yeah. than it was about 20 years ago. In other words, the rate of improvement in the global north, even at very low levels of under five mortality, has been faster than the rate of improvement in sub-Saharan Africa. So I say this is completely unacceptable. Right. And um, it's completely unacceptable that there are children dying, um, in, especially in Africa and South Asia, because you know most of the deaths are concentrated there, in countries like Nigeria, where, you know, in the north of Nigeria, I've seen data, you know, 10% of children are immunized. Yeah. And, you know, 5% of children get access to oral rehydration therapy and so on. Now, we know that's not all due to external um, yeah. exploitation. I mean, there is a relationship, there's a nexus between global capitalism and national collaborators, you call them compradors, you can call them what you want, but they are people who benefit right. from their relationship with the international economy, but their subjects don't benefit. So, in certain countries, like Rwanda, like Ethiopia, where you have, let's call them benevolent dictators, because they kind of like that. I mean, there are people who've come to power on the back of social movements or terrible humanitarian disasters like in Rwanda and for a while have had the support of their populations. And they have initiated very bold, like in Zimbabwe in the 80s, social programs, including in health, and they are showing... Huge improvements. I don't, I don't think they're lying about their data. I think it is the case. And I've been to Rwanda, I've been to Ethiopia, and I've seen some of this, and so have you. So I think they're doing it, but they're also pretty repressive. And they are sowing the seeds of their own destruction because there, there is no development without democracy, without participatory democracy actually direct democracy, where people actually have a say in their own development. Now, you've given an example yeah. over the last few days of Switzerland. So there was such an example, short-lived, in the first 10 years after the Russian Revolution. 
um, you know, when the Soviet workers' councils ruled, and in revolutionary situations, post-independence struggles and so on, you always see this phenomenon. Oh. I saw it in Zimbabwe for a few years, oh. where you actually had organized, self-organized committees at the ground level that decided on their own development. The problem is they didn't have any resources. Oh. So the state gave them some, but it didn't really build them up because they posed a threat. You saw the same in Nicaragua. You saw the same in, um, in actually in Greece during the, the time that Syriza yeah. came to yeah. power. Yeah. So you get the self-organization of people, which in my view is the embryo of socialist democracy. Okay, no, no, this is really important. And uh, I think you've touched on some incredibly important issues, uh, beautifully put. Just to finish, um, I wanted you to say something to the, the medical students and young doctors who are sort of David Sanders lookalikes, but 50, 60 years later. Uh, <laughs> It, the struggle, it, we, we've talked a lot about survival differences in Africa and Asia, but if you look in the West now, you've got uh, pandemics, if you like, arising also from the forces of capitalist production around alcohol, big food, big alcohol, uh, issues around big pharma, um, big finance, and the way finance is used um, to control. And... These are leading to pandemics of, you know, diabetes, obesity, hypertension, stress, uh, loneliness. And then, of course, the, the negative as well as the beneficial effects of social media and the like. So what lessons are there in all countries, whether it's those kind of problems or residual problems in much poorer countries for young medics and health professionals to use their influence as health workers to bring about appropriate change for health. What would you, advice would you give? And what, just mention a few words about the people's health movement before we finish. Okay, so in the first book I wrote, Struggle for Health, which I'm struggling to do a new edition of, I suggested there were a number of, um, I suppose, areas in which the concerned health practitioner could involve him or herself. And there are a number. So just to, so one can do, for example, if one happens to be a researcher, there are areas of research, some of which you have covered very well, that desperately need to be done. So there is not enough research, in my view, on the causes of the causes, on the social determinants of various aspects. You were talking about loneliness the other day, yeah. and isolation, and the problems that young people have of feeling actually quite alone despite their social media networks. Yeah. So there's a lot of research that needs to be done. And there needs to be research done also on comprehensive primary health care. So where is it that primary health care has approximated the Alma Ata Declaration? What are good examples right. of intersectoral action for health? Mm. And actually, when I speak to people, no one can think of anything. And, well, we recently published a book which, which um, had some examples of comprehensive primary health care, but I don't feel there's nearly enough been invested in evaluating these sorts of Well, uh, yeah. Sri Lanka, Costa Rica, Kerala, the British National Health Service, uh, imperfect, but free at the point of delivery, I think I still. Know, ab absolutely. And reaching out and providing the <laughs> care, I, I think on the prevention promotive side, there's still a lot to be done. 
uh, and even within less equal settings, that there are a lot of pilot programs that have uh, attempted to do that in a whole variety of ways. Mm. And many European countries do it using insurance models. So, no, that's that's true. Um, and, you know, I think we were talking yesterday about Good Health at Low Cost, yeah. you know, that famous Rockefeller publication, and then Good Health at Low Cost 2, which was done a few years ago, which had some different countries. And I'm working with some people on a project called Punching Above Their Weight, looking at countries and right. why some countries do better than others. But what I'm talking about something different. It's about, it's called implementation science these days. You can call it what you want. But how do uh, large-scale initiatives, which have all of the components of comprehensive primary health care, how do they get developed? What is the process? What should be the process? Because mm. we talk about primary health care, and then we quote countries which essentially have had political revolutions or significant reforms, right, right. like Sri Lanka or Kerala right. or whatever. But how do we, from within the health sector, yeah. how, do, how do we develop these sorts of models but which go to scale? Yeah. So there's been very little written about this. So I think that's another area of research. Yeah. What else can the concerned health activist do? Yeah. So the concerned health activist, if he or she is a teacher, as I am, you can try and convey some of these ideas to people that you teach or that you learn with through teaching, through writing, through blogging, or whatever. Very important. But most important is, and, and of course, sorry, um, there, there's advocacy where um, it's very important to disseminate information about and using all sorts of different tools about essentially um, exploitation within health. So that means the commercial drivers of yeah. health problems. Yeah. It means what the pharmaceutical companies are up to. It means, um, you know, what, what's, what's happening in terms of conflict of interest and and so on and so so all of that is WHO codes yeah WHO codes violations and then of course how global health governance is being distorted by the intervention essentially of capital you know and you've told right, me right. the stories about the global fund you know how is it that the global fund which uses a lot of public money. It's not just private money. Well, it's 99% public or philanthropic money, yeah. Yes, and, and we should never forget that philanthropic money is ultimately public money, right? Because people buy Microsoft, yeah. right? And Bill Gates, the Gates Foundation does a lot of good stuff, but also does some bad stuff. Bill Gates invests some of that money yeah. in, by the way, Coca-Cola, tobacco, and other places. But a lot of the money is tax-free in his foundation, and he's deciding what to do with it. So if he were just to give it to the state, <laughs> then, you know, as tax, <laughs> then it would go into, right. depending on the government, of yeah. course, into social services. So we shouldn't think that he's... Just, you know, like a Robin Hood, because he's not actually. Right. So, global governance, as you know, is now being extremely influenced by the private sector. And um, it shouldn't be. And I agree with you. WHO must be fought for, because it is the only democratic uh, agency, at least on paper. Because we know that in reality... The big countries, especially the U.S., strong arm the small countries into agreeing 
to things that they wouldn't otherwise have agreed to. And actually the manifestation of this was when the small countries had the right to vote without U.S. interference, they all elected Tedros, right? So why did they elect Tedros? I don't think it's because Tedros is necessarily so great, but he was a third world candidate and they were kind of giving the finger, I think, to, you know, to the North, saying, look, we want to try and control, even if when it comes to the resolutions, the U.S. can veto important resolutions. So finally, because I've gone on too long, (laughs) so what should um, young activists do? I've given a few examples, but ultimately young activists have to become involved in social movements. Because although it's great that um, people do research, they teach, they provide evidence for use by uh, the oppressed and activist groups, unless we build a social movement, a big one, which is not just confined to health services, but also interlinks with climate change movements, with movements around gender, with movements around uh, water sanitation, and so on and so forth. Unless we build a strong movement... uh, we're not going to actually reverse the disaster that we're heading into. We're already in it, actually. Yeah, right. So, um, uh, particularly when you when you see how much wealth there is. Yeah. So I don't know if you know. I saw a figure the other day that um, sixty-three trillion dollars are held in offshore accounts untaxed. <laughs> yes. Right. Right. So, you know, there is a lot of wealth. Yeah. So why should the working class everywhere be tightening their belts? I mean, in South Africa, they've just imposed VAT. They've increased value-added tax on essential commodities. So basically, the poor are being taxed the same as the rich on essential items. So why should the poor have to suffer Mm. because of what is essentially corruption. So we need to do a big job in raising awareness about the local and the global causes of health inequity. And unfortunately, because of globalization, Hmm. it is no longer possible to correct these things in one country because of the intrusion of global forces not least global economic forces. Mm -hmm. So just to come back to finally, so why is socialism a dirty word? Well, it's a dirty word because the first experiment in socialism, well, it wasn't the first, the first was the Paris Commune, but the first large-scale experiment, Russia, Mm. the Soviet Union, Mm. became distorted. There's no question about it. You know, perhaps for the first 10 years in the Soviet Union, it wasn't just a centrally controlled economy. It was the other very important part. There were workers' councils. Right, exactly. The under, yeah, yeah. So there was democracy as well. So that got distorted. So why did it get distorted? Was it just because Stalin was a bad guy or that Lenin was wrong? No. Stalin was a bad guy. It's because Marx was prescient. Marx said, socialism, words to this effect, can only come in the advanced countries where technology and the proletariat are well developed. So we have never seen a socialist revolution in an advanced country. That Uh, Lenin said, he was still alive, that the Russian Revolution 
was defeated in 1919 in Germany when the German socialist revolution was was smashed. Right. And Rosa Luxemburg was yeah. killed. Yeah. So until we get big anti-capitalist movements in the West, I don't think we're going to see what we would like to see. We will see things like Rwanda. We will see things like Ethiopia. We'll see ephemeral things like happened in Zimbabwe. But we will not see the kind of society, sustainable society that we need to see until we get those big social movements in the advanced countries. And after all, it is the advanced countries that are driving the disaster, mm. including climate change. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, that's where the movements have to also be created. David, we must stop. It's been fascinating. And I think uh, I will come back to you <laughs> in the not distant future because uh, we don't know what's going to happen with Brexit, with Trump, with all of these uh, political changes. But you were incredibly important to me in my career, although we've never really worked together by the influence of your thinking. And I'm so glad I can give a voice to you <laughs> through this miserable podcast. But I've loved being here. I think what you've done at the University of the Western Cape, which was the original black university in, in Cape Town, uh, and you brought a fantastic team together, Professor Asher George and, and Tanya Doherty, who comes in from the South African Medical Research Council, who I know, but many, many other colleagues. And you're running some very progressive programs. And I've loved my brief stay here and I will try and come back. But thank you very much. And I'm glad to see that you're still obstreperous, difficult, asking challenging questions but an inspiration to people who believe that health is more than just a delivery of drugs. Okay, thank you very much for listening. If you know someone who might benefit from this podcast, please do tell them. Help us to grow our community and do check out or sign up to my blog at www.antonycostello.net. If you sign up, you'll get an email every week which links to the blog or podcast. So have a great week. Bye.